Hey, what's up? This is Champagne Sharks. Uh, so far, we're off to a good start. Fingers crossed. Knock on wood. This is T. Uh, Trevor, you could find me on Twitter at Ricky Rawls, R-I-C-K-Y-R-A-W-L-S, no underscore. And just to get some stuff out of the way, if you enjoy the show, subscribe on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Champagne Sharks. You know the drill. You get double the content. And there's going to be some changes coming up with how the Patreon is set up. Like we're going to actually have qualitatively different shows on the pre and the Patreon side, as opposed to just having both be interchangeable, whatever. But that's neither here nor there. We're still sorting it out, and that's going to be revealed in the coming weeks. But we have with us the co-host. I will pick at random first. Let's start with D. Hey, everybody. It's D Mills. Mario, you can catch me on Twitter at MDMills79. Thank you all for listening. And, uh, we're going to have a great topic on this show, man. I'm looking forward to digging into this. Yeah, and we have Mike. Hey, everybody. This is Mike. Uh, thanks for coming back once again. Uh, we've got a couple new guests, and it's going to be live. Uh, so for me, you can find me at Black Exception one on Twitter. Let's get into it. All right, so our first guest is Cat Williams. And no, 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 our first guest is Matt Brunick. <laughs> It's pew, 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 pew. <laughs> hey, uh, no, no, seriously, our first guest is Matt Bruning. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is Matt. Uh, I'm excited to, to talk about the, the paper we wrote. And we have Ryan Cooper. Howdy, folks. Thanks for, thanks for uh, inviting us on. Yeah, um, the paper that you guys wrote that's getting uh, a lot of attention. I, I was... It was a very good paper, but I was surprised at how much attention it's gotten in such a short amount of time. Um, but the full name of the paper is what? It is uh, Foreclosed, the Destruction of Black Wealth During the Obama Presidency. Um, before we get into the actual content of it and drill down, I wanted to know, is the response you've gotten to it, is it? pretty much what you expected is it more so less so well i i kind of i i kind of didn't i kind of didn't think it would get that much of a response because a lot of it is, is stuff that's pretty well pretty well known at least if you follow these issues and uh, the only like real totally novel stuff is some of the data that we put up um so i kind of thought well people who are interested in this subject they already know a lot of this, so they're not going to be interested. And people who aren't interested in this subject, they're not going to be interested at all. So we're, we're in a kind of a, a situation where, where it's just not going to go very far. That was a, a, a real fear I had. But so so the response was was much better than I expected. Yeah, that's right. You'd normally think this kind of thing, it's like... Uh... You know, it's backward looking, as they say in the business. It's like, oh, nobody cares about things that happened more than five minutes ago. You know, it's got to be, you know, what's in the future? But I think just having this story and putting a nice bow on it, you know, wrapping it all up and having some, you know, new data that more or less just confirmed what everybody thought, but still gives it to you straight. I think people, it actually uh, 
people really responded to that in a way that makes sense in retrospect, I think. Yes, indeed. One of the things that surprised me, one thing that surprised me about um, the article was, and we discussed this um, beforehand, I'm, I'm used to a lot of policy articles and studies, especially with graphs involved in data, to be you know very dry and hard to penetrate for a layperson. And it seems this one was very, very readable. Like there were articles in places like Jacobin and Splinter and other places that were kind of summarizing the article. But then when I actually went and read the piece, it was it wasn't even necessary. And I was wondering what the division of labor was on that and how intentional uh, that was. I think it's one of the best things about it. Well, I mean, the division of labor was basically uh, Ryan wrote pretty much all of it. And I did the data stuff and I wrote a little bit of the part that deals with the data stuff. Um, so, I mean, it's mainly was a Ryan thing. And, you know, Ryan writes a piece a week or one piece a day, 800 words a day, I think, at theweek.com for his opinion column. So he's got a lot of uh, just grinding intense experience writing for a popular audience so you know he's really good at it <laughs> yeah that, well that that's maybe overstating things a bit but um it is true that i have to write every day and the only way i know how to write is i, I think matt called me one time a lunch pail take man which is you know so it's like get you know give give me something that like if it's if it's boring and the same thing that everybody else is saying, at least it's like interesting to read. And so that's something I could do reasonably well, even if really none of the analysis was at all original. At least you can make it mm -hmm. comprehensible, not like you got a, you know, sort of your classic policy guy who's just so deep in the weeds for so long that he can't really see, you know, the moral outrage mm -hmm. of the thing he's talking about. So. Before we get into the meat of um, <clears throat> what the article is discussing, I wanted to ask you guys, like, what was the um, the inspiration behind you guys deciding to write about this? You know, um, obviously, you know, you're two gentlemen, um, non-black gentlemen. Why was this important for you guys to uh, discuss? Wait, 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 wait. They're not black? <laughs> what was some of the, the thought process that went into writing this article and why did you guys feel like it was important to uh get this information out there yeah so when i before i started uh, people's policy project i worked at a think tank called demos and i did a lot of work there on the racial wealth gap. And the very first post that I put on People's Policy Project included a paragraph where I said, you know, uh, the Federal Reserve is going to release new data on the racial wealth gap, which only comes out every three years. They're going to release it in the next couple months. And when they release it, you know, I'm going to do a report on it to see, you know, what actually happened during the Obama administration, because Prior to a couple of months ago, the latest data we had was 2013, and that data looked really, really bad. But you know, we're three years on; it could have gotten better. Um, a lot of things did get better in the last three years, especially the stock market came back really hard. So I kind of, I kind of wondered, 
you know, how's it going to look like once we get the final data in, is it going to be the case that the decisions that they made, you know, yeah, it, it, it hurt black wealth in the short term, but it came back at the end of the, you know, once the economy started coming back, or is this kind of a permanent thing? And then the data came out, I looked at it and it looked really, really bad still. And so you know, <laughs> right. let's do a paper. Uh, I want to say something to um, Dee and Mike in case they aren't already aware, but um, do you guys remember that piece that was about Kamala Harris and her past as a prosecutor? And it, it got a lot of pushback. A lot of liberals got... I wrote a piece kind of talking about all the disingenuous responses that that piece got. It was about like the different centrist smears that um, centrists try to do against leftists. But, well, well basically, um, Ryan wrote that piece. Oh, okay. Okay, okay. <laughs> you, Ryan's he, a wrote, he wrote that piece. <laughs> I'm a glutton for punishment. This is this is not his first this is not his first rodeo with uh making liberals uh mad because that was one piece that already got a lot of um people talking about you. Like some people still bring you up with um that piece. So do you think to a degree that kind of had people primed to respond to that one as well with the this current report? Uh maybe a little bit. I think, you know, I see most of the people who are criticizing the the piece. They don't even really seem to have realized that I helped write it. So it's just that Brunig did it. Brunig's a known Bernie bro, and they don't even click. Brunig's not much better when it comes to, to rallying them up. It might he might even be worse uh, than you. And as far as triggering, uh, I hate using that word now, but yeah, riling yeah. up the the thing. But you know, it it is a. Like uh, uh, Matt was mentioning this earlier, but, you know, this this would be if it weren't for the, uh, you know, the fact that it was President Obama that presided over this. Like if Mitt Romney had done this policy or John McCain, like it would be, you know, the case for reparations part two um, or, you know, three or seven or whatever. Like like just one of the great epochs of wealth destruction um, of black people, like more or less deliberately through government policy. Um, and it's just, you know, it hasn't been processed that way. And so, you know, I think it's worth like really just, you know, I mean, it was a disaster and it's worth just like hammering that home, even if it's kind of uncomfortable. It's true that the subject matters a lot because I mean, when it's Donald Trump, you could write about, you know, gaslighting America and, that's like a major piece of the ages, like, you know, and this is getting a lot of pushback, which is insane, insane to me. But, um, yeah. Can you guys like to start off There's three parts of the article, the, uh, the study and the three parts broken down are the circumstances that led to the housing bubble. Uh, statistics that showed a decline in black housing wealth. And part three is an approach that would have halted the foreclosure crisis. And one thing that's interesting to me about part three is before I read the study for myself, I had read a lot of the pushback from critics to this study. 
And one of the constant criticisms was, what could Obama have done? So then I was surprised when I read the paper, and there was actually a whole third part basically about what Obama could have done. And it kind of showed a lot of people didn't seem to actually be even opening the document um, before they just started reciting a litany of talking points against it. Well, you know how people are, man. Uh, you know, they, they, they read the headline and they read who wrote it and they're off to the races. They don't they don't bother scrolling down. You know, you see that a lot online. Especially not in a PDF where you got to actually download something and scroll all the way to the bottom. It's like 30 pages long. Yeah, some of them you could tell just because they started doing the responses like a half hour after the link even came out. And you're like, you know, did you really have time to even read anything? But I mean, I think it's just the nature of reaction media now. But can you start with a summary of what the housing crisis was, like part one, like what led to the housing bubble and the fallout that happened? Uh, sure. Yeah, I could <clears throat> do that part. The, you know, the mechanics of it have been, you know, discussed endlessly in books like, you know, The Big Short and stuff. But, uh, you know, the main thing was that after the Wall Street deregulation in the 90s, there's this um, huge new burst of new financial products um, and a new a new uh, push to lend out subprime mortgages, which are very low quality uh, mortgages to, you know, to kind of marginal borrowers. And so they'll have like, you know, very low in, uh, introductory rates and then a very sharp increase. Um, that sort of thing. And the, in, what the innovation came in was, um, innovation in massive air quotes was basically to take these subprime mortgages and package them up into securities such that you could supposedly prove with complicated math that they would never go bad. Um, but the real purpose was just to camouflage the fact that these, uh, through complexity, basically that these loans were trash. And these uh, securities that they were building out of them were trash. But the result was just like a flood of money into the, you know, housing sector, home ownership, and a huge run up in prices. Um, but, you know, eventually the music stopped. They ran out of, uh, you know, basically suckers. And um, housing prices peaked about 2006 and started to come down. And so, you know, they... They started falling pretty bad in 2007. It's like free fall in 2008. And, uh, you know, so you had these like huge numbers of people, their home is their main asset. And then you had this massive secondary universe of financial uh, assets, you know, mortgage backed securities and collateralized debt obligations that have been built on top of that. And then you had these things called credit default swaps, which are basically a way to bet on these mortgage securities if they're going to go bad or bet on companies if they're going to go bad. And that increased the risk to the you know whole financial system from this uh, the exposure to the housing bubble. Anyway, so 2007 comes around and then clearly like the market's having a major correction, major crash in prices. And, um, you know, the question is, who's going to take the hit? And that's like the main, you know, when it comes to housing foreclosure 
policy that is the that is you know the question facing the Obama administration is they're coming into power um, is who's going to take the hit and um, you know that that sort of like set the stage because in they in 2008 you know they passed the bailout they made an initial try at passing a bailout and it didn't work and so they did a second one which was like much more had much more oversight and then it also had a basically a slush fund for mortgages for mortgage relief foreclosure relief in there because and democrats insisted on putting that in there figuring that well obama will, will be in charge because he's probably going to win so we're just going to give him this blank check and he's going to at least give something for homeowners and that's you know that's in 2009 what they're when he takes office that's what they're looking at and those are the tools he has so so to make sure i understand the tools that could have been used were included in the language. So it becomes a question of how he uses discretion to enforce those tools. Uh, Is that the correct? Yeah, but more or less, you know, like the, there's all, you know, the government has tremendous authority that they can use. Like they have just, they had just taken over nationalized, basically Fannie and Freddie, the, these two, uh, issuers of mortgage-backed securities and they those two own literally trillions like 10 trillion dollars in mortgage assets and so you know there's one potential point of leverage but then they also had in the bailout fund this massive discretionary thing it doesn't even say how much um, it says that they can they can for you know financial relief they can take 350 billion and then they can come back for another 350 billion if they want um, in total for not just rather, not just for foreclosure relief, but for like everything, you know, all the TARP money and everything like that. But like, you know, they, they, uh, eventually dedicated 50 billion and then plus another 25 billion from Fannie and Freddie. So 75 total, but it could have been probably more than that if they wanted to. Okay. Yeah. Cause one of the reasons why I'm going to keep returning to that is because I notice a constant, uh, knee jerk response or retaliation I get whenever I post a piece or whatever is they keep saying, what could Obama have done? What could the president have done? What could have been done? So people have kind of accepted as default this um, idea that there were no things or no tools available that um, could be used. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm over the course of this hour, we're going to keep returning to or, yeah, one of the other popular outs that they give him is, um, you know, the Republican Congress would have tried to block anything that he tried to do. And it's what's completely overlooked is the fact that uh, at the time that he was elected at first, he had a, a Democrats held control of the House and the Senate at that particular point in time. Huge majority. And um, he decided a huge majority. Right. He decided to put his eggs in the basket of going right. And pushing hard for um, the Affordable Care Act. So, you know, that's one of the things that gets lost in the conversation or intentionally overlooked, however cynical you right. are about the topic. Yeah, I mean, they had they had unified control of government. So so they, they could have conceivably done anything legislatively. But then they also had already passed bills that gave the president authority to act and spend money to provide relief to homeowners. And then the, the last thing that, that Ryan didn't mention, but 
that I think is important and, and has kind of been underplayed a little bit in the coverage of this is there was a detection of widespread um, mortgage fraud where the banks were uh, foreclosing on people that they didn't even have the proper documentation to foreclose on. And in that situation, I mean, if you really wanted to, you could have gone as far as to say, too bad the home goes to the, you know, to the person in it. Uh, I mean, like that, that is as far as I think you could have gone legally there. You didn't keep track of the paperwork. You have no legal authority here. You lose the home. Too bad. And and just the ability to, to say that and, and have that power should give you enough room legally to get them to get the banks on board and, uh, you know, cutting down mortgage amounts and principles and so on, eating way more of the loss than they actually did. Absolutely. Especially when they were in a position of having to supposedly um, ask for money during the bailout crisis. You know, they were in a particularly vulnerable position where you could have made specific demands of them and that could have been included in that. Um, so I want to take a step back. <clears throat> One of the things that's often discussed in this conversation is how blacks and Latinos were specifically targeted um, during the mortgage bubble. So can you guys talk about that a little bit? Like in, in what ways were um, some of these some of the lower class and, and blacks and Latinos um, diverted into bad loans? Yeah, absolutely. The I mean, there's basically two things going on. Number one, you know, black and Latino people are disproportionately poor. So they're, you know, kind of like the universe right. of targets. But then the second thing is that um, they the banks shunted middle class black and Latino families um, into these subprime mortgages. You know, the, the bubble created tremendous demand for subprime loans because that was sort of the fuel of the, you know, this securities machine. And, and to be clear, these are middle-class black families that could have qualified normally for non-subprime loans, right? Yes, exactly. That's right. And, and there's a study, I forget the uh, numbers um, precisely, but... Yeah, I, I have it. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, the, the, stat, the stat is, um, so if you have a credit score of 660 and above, which is a middling credit score... If you are white and you had a credit score of 660 and above, only 6.2% of white borrowers in that credit range got a subprime loan. But for Latinos, it was 19.3%. And for blacks, it was 21.4%. So we're talking about people with the same credit scores getting put into way worse loans if they're black and Latino two, three, four times as likely to be given these subprime mortgages, even though they have the same credit score as the as white borrowers. That's amazing. Um, was this broken down by like geographical region as well? Is there any information available? Like in California, for example, was it a higher proportion in California or on the East Coast, West Coast, Midwest, et cetera? I would imagine somebody's done that, but I, I haven't seen on that, no. I do know that, okay. that you okay. know, some, they, they do have like, um, you know, some s studies and uh, journalistic accounts of wealthy uh, black neighborhoods like uh, Prince George's County, you know, outside of D.C. that just got hammered in both ways. More subprimes and then more foreclosure after the crisis. Wow. Amazing. 
Yeah. Um. Something. I actually want to um backtrack a little bit to talk about how some of the things that were meant to remedy the fallout were kind of botched and why because you talked about something called hamp can you explain what hamp is and why it was a failure uh sure so hamp is a home affordable mortgage program and and basically that's you know they had the slush fund in the tarp bailout the emergency economic stabilization act of 2008 so they had their mortgage slush fund in there. They dedicated initially $75 billion to it. And they decided that the way they were going to try to carry out loan modifications, which is, you know, they in the, in the bills, it authorizes uh, principal reductions, which is, say, like cutting the amount of uh, outstanding debt or lowering interest rates you know, cutting the interest you're paying every month or other modifications. It was like whatever, you know, whatever you could think of. But they decided to achieve that. They're going to pay the mortgage servicers to incentivize them to do this. And the mortgage servicers, uh, to, just to explain that real quick, these are the, the people, not the people who own the mortgage, but the people who are processing the paperwork for the mortgage. Um, you know, the kind of the accounts receivable department because during the bubble, you know, they had sliced and diced all these mortgages. And so they had to hire people instead of just like in back in the old days when the bank kept the mortgage and the bank did all the paperwork processing. Now they have to outsource that. But the, the problem with doing that is that the servicers have contrary financial incentives uh, to keep loan principles high and because they're uh, paid a percentage of the outstanding principal and then to load up people with fees and even to foreclose because they're paid out of the proceeds of a foreclosure auction before the investors. So and so, a you know, for uh, misbehavior, basically. Uh, yeah, misbehavior. And then on top of that, on top of just this being like, you know, you're pushing on a string, basically, uh, they blatantly abuse the program. You know, they in many cases, used HAMP to trick people into foreclosure. They'd say like, oh, don't stop making your payments and you'll get a modification. And then when they'd stop making their payments, they'd just get foreclosed on. You know, all this stuff is against all the rules. And and in many cases, fraud, you know, illegal activity. Well, I was just uh, wondering if there were any consequences for these people that were servicing the loans that were uh, tricking people in the, in the foreclosures and uh, whatnot. No, they 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 uh, never investigated. Justice Department never prosecuted people. They they temporarily clawed back some of the payments that they had made to these servicers, but uh, eventually gave them back oh. after they shaped up. <laughs> so anyway, that just that you know, th this is only kind of a small part of the foreclosure failure, but. Even their explicit effort to help homeowners was a total disaster. Was HAMP designed to help homeowners at all? I mean, that was the sort of ostensible justification. But, um, you know, the bailout inspector general, infamously, he's in the room with Tim Geithner, the Treasury Secretary, and Elizabeth Warren, who was, you know, at that point, uh, more of a consumer advocate type person. Um, and just, she is just asking him, uh, 
what uh, why this is going so poorly. And he said that the point of the program is to foam the runway for the banks, which is to say, like, you know, when we're the, allocating this loss, the point is to just like allocate it to homeowners as much as you can to protect the banks. And that wow. even for the foreclosure. Program. So basically the banks were the priority and he said as much. Yeah, at every, I mean, the, the program design is just, that's explicitly what it did and what it, from the horse's mouth, what it would design. And what was that guy's name who said that? Tim Geithner, the, the secretary. Oh, Tim, oh, Tim Oh, didn't Neil Borowski say some, some guy named Neil Borowski you guys mentioned also? Yeah, he was made the, it clear. the witness. He was the bailout inspector general. Oh, okay. Okay, got it. Got it. So, wow. So, the other thing I was wondering, right? You were talking about in this study also about how it's not just about um, losing some value in your house or whatever, but you guys give scenarios describing how owning a home, thousands of dollars underwater, is in a lot of ways worse than having no home at all. Because I know some people are saying, oh, as long as you at least have a home, it's better than not having a home, even if you're kind of struggling. So can you elaborate on, on why owning a home that's thousands of dollars underwater is, according to you, worse than not even owning a home? Yeah, the this was actually, I think, one of the in, most interesting uh, stats we were able to pull from our analysis. And that was that, you know, most of the focus has been on foreclosure. We even called the piece foreclosed. People were getting booted out of their homes and their homes were being taken from them. But there was this other group of people who they didn't leave their home. It didn't get taken from them. But the home value declined so much that they owed more on their mortgage than the home was actually worse than, than the home was actually worth. And so they're, they're in a worse position than being, because if you get foreclosed, all right, you kind of cut your losses and you're done here. You don't get to cut your losses. you got to pay your way out of this hole before you're even, you know, at a positive asset value in your, in your home. And we showed that, um, for, for black homeowners and Latino homeowners, right before the recession, only about 0.7% of them had a home that was worth less than they owed on it, which is pretty typical. Usually almost nobody has that because a bank, you, you should never get in that situation. A bank should never loan you more than a home is worth. It doesn't make any sense. So before the, the Great Recession hits, only 0.7% of black homeowners are underwater. After it hits in 2013, it goes up to 14%. Wow. So, so it increases by 20 times, uh, just a, a wild uh, spike that you don't see, you know, in any of the data we have going back to 1989. It's never happened before. Um, and those people are paying on a home that is worth less than they owe. They're just sort of throwing money into the into the trash basically uh to stay in their home and it make it makes sense you know uh you don't want to necessarily lose your home you may not have an alternative there are reasons why people stay in their homes but there it's really terrible for your your, uh, your mental well-being as well i can imagine having that kind of stress on top of yeah these. and it's something else that's in the study too you guys yeah. talk about things that go beyond just financial ramifications and i think mike just tipped on it with the stress and the 
demoralization. But you guys uh, listed a few other, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, side effects. If you guys can elaborate them. Yeah, stuff like, you know, people are greater risk of depression, anxiety, suicide, um, you know, it wrecks your credit rating too, being underwater. Um, even if you may want, you know, you may want to leave. You know, some people might want to stay, but some people might want to leave and then you can't, you know, because you can't sell your house. Um, and, you know, you can just imagine, as you say, that that kind of stress is just, you know, soul crushing. Yeah. And the, the downward mobility that happens because, you know, the, the dream, the hope is that you're always leaving your kids off better than where you were. And you might actually be leaving them uh, worse. Going going backwards is really painful uh, in you know all sorts of ways economically. So to 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 have spent you know maybe twenty years building up, building up, building up, and then to have that just taken out from underneath you is is a very psychologically damaging situation. Even if you are maybe okay. Like you're not starving or or something like that, but just just to have the whole thing wiped out is a very demoralizing that, experience. Yeah, especially when you played by the rules and did everything you know how the system says you're supposed to do it, and then to have something like that happen, like you said, like everybody just touched on it, it has to be devastating. There was something that I'm not sure was mentioned um, in the article, but I heard you guys in another interview uh, bring this up. I totally did not know this, but um, I really want to hear more about it. Is it true that there's actual voter disenfranchisement that can happen out of this? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, think about it. When you register to vote, you register at a residence. And so every time you move, you have to re-register. So if you're kicking a bunch of people out of their homes, and, and a lot of people were also evicted from apartments during this time because they lost their jobs. Unemployment was really bad. Every time someone gets kicked out of an apartment or kicked out of a home, their voter registration dies with them and, they, and until they get back on uh, somewhere else and re-register. And, you know, often you're not keen on re-registering when you're in that uh, moment, oh, wow. <laughs> having been evicted and, and really struggling economically. So... So you, you, you push a lot of blacks out of their homes and out of their apartments and you're killing their voter registration. Uh, and, and, you know, they may not be motivated to get re-signed up that quickly when they're dealing with, you know, what they're dealing with economically. And you couple that with the fact of them trying to get rid of same day registration in a lot of places. And it's really, yeah, I can see how that's, yeah. Voter ID laws and all that type of thing. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you're pushing them off the registration at the same time as Republicans are making it harder for them to get re-registered. It's a double whammy of, you know, people getting pushed off the rolls. Something I wanted wow. to talk about um, uh, before we go, I wanted to talk about disingenuous um, pushback that you guys may have gotten. And I've co- tried to collect like a list of things I've seen people say that I've personally... Uh, felt as a little bit disingenuous, but in the spirit of fairness, before we even go to that, I wanted to give you guys a chance to bring up any pushback you feel that you've gotten that um, has been, is there any um, pushback that you've gotten that you said, you know, 
you know what? Um, that's a good point. We'll address it in a future paper or that, you know, you think has pointed out to some legitimate um, shortcomings in the study? Uh, I mean, that's, th- there's a criticism that I understand where it's coming from, but I don't think is ultimately very good. And that is <clears throat> for some of our data, when we're trying to, you know, assess the full impact of what happened, we go from 2007 to 2016. And people who don't necessarily know how this data is released, look at that and say, why are you starting in 2007? Uh, Obama doesn't come in until 13 months later. So you're really bringing in all this other bad stuff that happened under Bush. And the problem is that the data only comes out every three years. So it's either 2007 or 2010. And if you started in 2010, it's actually worse (laughs) uh, from, from 2010 because you know, it, from 2010 to, so one stat, from 2010 to 2016, the top 1% increased their wealth by an average of $8 million. Between 2007 and 2016, it's only $5 million. So the, the dispersion in the outcomes is way higher if you start in 2010. But people who bring that criticism up, they think the thing is released every year, which most data is released every year, but this one isn't. And then the second, the, the second point about that criticism is, you know, what? no one's saying Barack Obama caused the Great Recession. Obviously, he didn't, but it fell to him to deal with it. And so we're trying to assess the impacts of, okay, the Great Recession happened. Obama had to deal with it. How did he deal with it? And so to do that, we need to bring in, you know, the data starting from the beginning of the Great Recession all the way till the end. Uh, even if he, he didn't cause a great recession, he still, you know, mismanaged it. And that's the only way to measure how that mismanagement impacted. And that was going to be the first disingenuous argument that I was going to bring up, because that's when I saw the most common, where people were like, um, I didn't know Obama was elected in 2007. And they just try to use that as a way to ignore everything else um, in the paper. But I think you've already addressed that. So we're going to skip that one the the other one well the question i, I would have that kind of that, that kind of ties into that I, is it would it be fair to say that obama's policies just didn't help or that they were actually harmful which would well so i mean it's it's a hard it's a question of characterizing you know and i so i don't know how to how best to characterize it one analogy i thought of was uh hurricane katrina which, you know, Bush didn't cause Hurricane Katrina, but obviously the way he handled it was really, really devastating. Um, and so it's a similar kind of thing. And I, I don't know how much you want to, how much, how much blame you apportion onto Katrina or the recession and how much you put on the mismanagement of, you know, what resulted. Um, I, you know, that's a kind of, you know, there's no objective answer to that. It's really a sort of a how you think it makes the most sense to characterize it. Well, I think the fact that it, there are specific actions that were constructive that would have helped to alleviate the situation that he could have taken that you guys discussed in the article um, that he did not take, that he had the the authority or the power vested in him that he could have taken. Um and he didn't. He chose not to take those actions. Um, is that a fair statement? Yeah, definitely. Well, and and then you know, 
as I mentioned earlier, it, Hamp got somewhat better as it went along, but the, uh, you know, in the depths of the crisis in 2009, 2010, and 2011, um, th there were many, many cases where it, it actually enabled foreclosures. You know, people are getting ripped off through the program. And, you know, in that way, you can certainly say that it was actually making things worse, where people potentially could have kept their homes if they had not been, um, you know, if they had not participated in it. Uh, one of the other um, arguments that I found kind of disingenuous levied at the piece um, was the argument that what could he have done or he didn't have the power, which is something that we brought up um, in the beginning. And I said I was going to uh, revisit it. And being that I was seeing the discourse on Twitter and in the media before I actually had a chance to actually read the article, I was thinking, oh, it must be one of those articles that lays out a bunch of problems, but has no actual proposed solutions for said problems, the way that people were kind of, you know, attacking it. And then when I actually read it for myself, I saw that part three was explicitly called an approach that would have halted the foreclosure crisis. Like that was the whole third of the study was things he um, could have done. So I thought it'd be a good time uh, to let you guys close out the summary of the study by describing what you think he did have the power to do, you know, in response to the argument that um, he couldn't have done anything. Like, for example, I know a new version of Hulk uh, was one of the things you described. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, that's the, the homeowners loan corporation. And, you know, I'm not a housing policy expert. Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if uh, Brunig would describe himself that way either, but you know, all, all we did for this was just to say, basically copy pasted from the new deal. How did they deal with the foreclosure crisis back in the 1930s when there's something quite similar happened? Um, and what they did there was they had, uh, people who had what would be considered today subprime mortgages, um, that were like usually five years. Um, some of them were interest only, you know, they had no amortization. Um, that is to say they weren't paying down the principal at all. And then after five years, you'd have the entire principal due. So, you know, then when the, uh, you know, crisis happened and the whole financial sector seized up, nobody could refinance. And so basically the, the, uh, HOLC, they went out and they just bought, uh, uh, about, well, first they had people apply, but they ended up buying about 20% of all the owner, all the uh, mortgaged owner occupied homes in the entire country. And they refinanced people with uh, longer terms and lower interest rates. And that saved about 80% of them, kept them in their homes. The thing that you would have to do differently this time would because like most people already have long payment terms. You could reduce their interest rates because subprime mortgages usually have very high interest rates. Uh, but you would also want to cut their principal, you know, because that's the most effective thing. That's what we were talking about with people being underwater. The first step, if you, you know, you pick somebody, you want to make sure they could actually pay something, of course. But um, you're going you're gonna to help somebody and uh, you, you cut their, at least their principal down to the value of the home. 
So at least they're on even ground. You know, you're not underwater anymore. And you can start building up equity again. Uh, you know, so that would be a more expensive program. But as we said, you know, the government already owns trillions in mortgage assets. They had $75 billion, but They later cut that down by a lot. Um, and, you know, there maybe could have been, uh, a, you know, even better strategy. But, you know, this is just the one that had been tried before. And in fact, Hillary Clinton, of all people, in 2008 was saying, oh, we should just do the New Deal thing. That would seem to work. And it's like the, the, the fundamental thing to me is that, like, you, you have some task that you want the government to accomplish. And, what, you know, nine times out of ten, the, the thing to do is to just go and do it. Just step in and, tr and do the thing you want to do instead of like Obamacare or like HAMP, where you try to massage the private actors into doing it, which just, you know, it's either a disaster at best or like a janky a, a disaster at worst or a janky mess at best. You know? Yeah, Obama was good for that, for that, you know, always trying to do that West Wing build back consensus thing that only really works on the West Wing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and when the responses I saw, because, you know, I was trying to collect a lot of um, responses that I didn't think were, well, both fair and disingenuous. But unfortunately, I, I mostly found this what I thought was disingenuous. I, I saw some people say things like the authors didn't su su sufficiently address the New Deal as racist and that a revival of New Deal policies would necessarily be racist as well. And what they find interesting was when I actually did read the study, you actually say in this section where you discuss Hulk, you say, with special attention paid to black neighborhoods. Yeah, the, the problem with, with Hulk, and this is actually a much worse problem later down the road, but Hulk, they made these, the redlining maps that are now so infamous. They didn't actually loan out according to the redlining maps. Um, they, they gave money to dis disproportionately to poorer people because poorer people are actually more likely to repay. Uh, richer people are more likely to just walk away. Um, but those redlining maps, which were, you know, as people, as people now know, were a, basically any black neighborhood or integrated neighborhood, you, you couldn't, you know, they were all red and Later on, you know, private banks picked those up and then the uh, Federal Housing Agency, I believe, they, they stated that they're not going to insure any new mortgage loans in red, red line neighborhoods. Um, and so that was a horribly racist policy that was, uh, you know, had terrible knock on consequences, basically locked black people out of the post-war middle class. Um, but, you know, the response to that is just don't do that. You know, you have your you have your policy where it's like, oh, yeah, the New Deal had this terrible thing where they explicitly carved out black people You're like, OK, so don't do that part of it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It was very weird that the person added that the, that the new version would necessarily be racist as if it had to follow the same um, flaws as opposed to saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed to saying, hey, it did this before, let's do it again, but this time adjust for that. And in the study, you do say pay special attention to uh, you know, black neighborhoods. So it actually was right there clearly. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, what else what else did I see? Oh wait, here's here's one um where people were saying that um 
that the article was low key racist because by saying how Obama quote unquote failed blacks, you had unrealistically high standards of him that you never applied to white presidents uh, before. <laughs> well, I'd never, you know, um, Obama came into power when I was 19, so I didn't really have a huge opportunity to write about other presidents prior to him. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I was pretty anti-Bush when I was a teenager in high school, so, I, you know, that that's the best I can say. Uh, something I find interesting, too, here's one that, that I found... Um, I saw some people say that as a black president, he was uh, uniquely set up to fail, being that um, because he's black, he couldn't fight for he couldn't fight for black people that hard. And it kind of reminded me of an argument that um, that Matt said to me today that was we were talking about Michael Eric Dyson and uh, Matt reminded me of a Dyson article where um, Dyson said that Hillary would be better for black people than Obama was because Hillary was white. <laughs> right. Yeah. This is the, yeah, this is the, uh, the uh, yeah, I guess those are basically different versions of the same argument yeah yeah it's very weird because i was thinking okay if you're just saying that we should hold obama to lowered expectations not even the same expectations as white people but lowered expectations not only are you like parroting that weird dyson argument in a restated way but what's the point of electing a black president then like all this representation yeah, that's what I- yeah all this representation right. matters talk if you're basically saying that if we get a black guy in office we're supposed to expect less from him because it's harder for black people to empower to advocate for black people you've kind of made a case to never uh try to get a black yeah. president again yeah it's, it's it's at odds with the with the representational argument i remember when when dyson's piece first came out i was like well what okay so if it's the case that black electeds can't look out for black people because they're worried about being seen as biased or whatever, then, then does that also hold for gender? And so, uh, we should only elect, we should elect white men because they can attend to both racism and gender without having to worry about being seen as, you know, looking out for their, their people. It's a, yeah. but that would of course yeah. be the counter. Yeah. No I, one would yeah ironically, that. white men would become the most intersectional option of all. They're the best. They don't have any uh, yeah. commitments. They can do, uh, they can, and if they're straight, if they're white, straight, and male, they can uh, do, yeah. uh, do all three across the board. Oh, and rich. The whole thing. And rich. Rich. So, so not, uh, not even cis, support. Yeah. Uh, non-disabled. Yeah. yeah. Well, but also, I mean, to get to the point, I mean, uh, it wasn't the case that, like, middle-class white people lost heavily on this as well. Not as much as middle-class black people did, but... You wouldn't have had to have like, oh, here's a, a black home mortgage relief program. If you just had like middle class homeowner bailout that covered everyone, that would have been still very beneficial to middle class whites and especially beneficial to middle class blacks and Latinos. So, you know, it, in, 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 in policy issues where it's exclusively black, like maybe you start to worry about, oh, well, can he touch this or not? But this this affected a huge swath of white people. Then you you could have just 
you know, done policy that targeted all middle class homeowners, regardless of race, and and you would have been, you know, celebrated yeah, but, and welcomed. You know, it's definitely true that oh, anytime Obama did anything remotely black, he got a firestorm of criticism from Fox News. And, you know, I mean, remember when they had the beer summit with Henry Louis Gates and the cop that arrested him? Like, that was just, that was yeah. some <laughs> bullshit. But I think, you know, the the correct analysis is to say that, like, you, you know, he got a firestorm of criticism from conservatives, even with this crappy thing that he did. Um, and remember, this was Rick Santelli, the Tea Party. He was He was fulminating about the homeowners getting bailed out. And so if he had, if I think, I strongly believe that if Obama had just eaten the criticism, just been like, you know what, you people are full of shit. I don't care. I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead with my program. The, he, he would have weathered the storm and he would have come out better than he did in 2010 when the Democrats just got steamrolled. I, I mean, I mean, to see them still talk about him, he's still a commie, even though he bailed out the banks and did all this stuff. He's still like, you know, a Muslim sleeper agent, even though he bombed the hell out of black and brown Muslim countries. You know, he's still like a radical Black Panther, even though he didn't do anything really for um, black people. So, I, yeah, I agree with you. He might as well have weathered it. He he didn't change any of his opponents' minds anyway. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the same with immigrants when uh, way more deportations than Bush or now Trump in his first year. And uh, yet people still just freaked out about, you know, him being pro-immigrant or, and, you know, it, it doesn't really help for you to like, give in to that at all. I don't know if he was necessarily giving in. I, I think that's who yeah. Obama was. And he he really wanted them to see that. But I mean, and a lot of people, you know, on. You know, as they saw him as this, like you said, Muslim sleeper Asian on one side, the uh, the left side, they saw what they wanted to see in him, too. And it just, you know, it, it wasn't an accurate portrayal of who he actually was, which, you know, a central middle of the road. You know, I think it's a, I, yeah, I think it's a much better characterization than what we were saying, actually, because, yeah, the way we're saying it makes it seem like. He had these principles and he kind of sold them out. But, you know, I think you're right, Mike. I think this really was uh, who he was. Like the the last thing I'm going to say, and I'm going to let you guys have any final questions you want to ask. But I've been reading this book. It's a long as hell book. It's super long, but it's pretty good. It's that new Obama bio. Um, at this point, it's not even that new. Um, what, is, what is it called again? It's the new Rising Star. But yeah, I recommend, I mean, this guy, I think he examined Obama's stool samples, the level of research that he did. Like, like I think he knew the color of Obama's poop every day that he, what days was, con I mean, I've never seen this level of meticulous uh, research. But yeah, uh, the guy who wrote the book, David Garrow, he did a um, biography on, on Obama and the thing is really long and detailed. and. And it kind of goes with what Mike was saying about how he was kind of his own myth maker and that he really did not really betray uh, his principles once he kind of ran. He always was a very calculated, always taking the temperature uh, of the water kind of guy. Yeah, I think I think that's summarized absolutely correctly. Uh, 
all one has to do is look at for all of the things that he was that was said that he couldn't do uh, for fear of, of white backlash. Just look at some of the statements that he made um, when it involved any type of uh, black misgivings. You know, he, he didn't parse any words a lot of times, uh, whether it was calling um, the Baltimore uprising, uh, the people who participated in that thugs. Um, rather, it was some of his statements that he gave to certain uh, graduating classes of college students that were black. Um, his speech at the Congressional Black Caucus was, was very condescending and pompous. So also 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 on the flip side of that, what he said about groups that weren't black, like when the trans bathroom thing happened, he and his attorney general you know, before everyone's like, he's the president of all America, not just black America. But yeah. in that moment, he was willing to become the yeah. president of trans America and be very yeah. vocal. Yeah. Yeah. When the gay marriage thing happened, he was willing to turn the White House a rainbow color. He, he, was never, had, he to, never had a problem uh, expressing explicitly his goals or his things. He never came out explicitly and said this is what he wanted to do. So whether yeah. he could have gotten yeah. it done or not oh, yeah. is really not even the point. Did he want it to get done? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I want to ask you guys before you go, I'm out of questions. Um, I want to know what do you guys have coming up either related to this or not related to this that you want the people to know about? And is there anything, you know, related to this article that you feel has been kind of lost in the mix that you want to reiterate? Just to give both you guys a final word on whatever you want. Uh, well, we are go- we are working on probably a paper making the case for public housing. Um, so, you know, something a little bit more forward looking that hopefully you know cities or states could take advantage of. That would be uh, oh, self financing and uh, indeed produce a lot of money for city governments. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Yeah, I think that that'll be our our, our next collaboration. And then uh, I, there's another paper that is in the works now um, with another fellow that's going to be about race, class, and incarceration. Uh, we've we've got this data set that uh, tracks track people from seventh grade until age 32, and we're able to use that to figure out how much parental income, education, and that sort of thing affects your likelihood of being incarcerated as well as race and kind of control for all those factors and get a kind of interesting uh, sort of look in, you know, how class and race affect incarceration in in the U.S. Okay, pretty cool. Uh, Oh, actually, one last thing that I was supposed to do at the beginning of the show um, before you go out. I'm doing, I'm hustling backwards here. Tell the people where to actually find you. Like, uh, we didn't get a chance to mention actually what the People's Policy Project is. Yeah, People's Policy Project uh, is peoplespolicyproject.org. It's a think tank that is funded through uh, small donors. We have uh, around 1,800 small donors now that are contributing on Patreon or on Act Blue. And you can find links to both of those at peoplespolicyproject.org. Okay, and I'll put those links in the um I'll put those links in the show notes too. And Ryan, they can find you regularly at the week, right? 
Yeah, theweek.com and uh, on Twitter at Ryan L. Cooper. All right, great. Okay, guys, thanks for uh, joining us. It was a pretty good show, I think. Yeah, great. Thanks for having us. Great time. Thanks for inviting Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you guys are guys. always welcome back if you want to um, discuss any future uh, papers. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to those yeah, papers. Yeah, sure. uh, the, Especially the self-sustaining housing that they're talking yeah, about. That's something oh, I'm... yeah. It's coming, baby. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because you hear so much about, well, at least out here where I am, I don't know how it is in other parts of the country, but I'm in the Los Angeles area. And you often times hear about this housing crisis. You know, there's a there is not enough housing to go around, and so we have to build, 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 and build more, bigger and more expensive housing. And there's never seems to be any affordable housing. So yeah, hopefully you guys uh, cover some of that as well in that paper. Yeah, yep, and you're definitely. always welcome to come back and uh, discuss it. So yeah, you guys enjoy your night, and we will chat again soon. Thanks. Take it easy. All right, man. Be good.